Democrats to complain about Washington and government. Carter was anti-Washington. Reagan was anti-government. Pretty soon I received a letter from Reagan. This is just a line to thank you for your article in New York. I'm aware our viewpoints may differ. Indeed, you so indicated. But I appreciate your fairness. Perhaps one day our paths may cross, and who knows, we may discover our differences are not so terribly great. I look forward to a meeting, and in the meantime, thanks again. Our paths did cross over the next fifteen years. He didn't change my liberal mind, and I didn't dent his conservatism, and we did agree on many things, particularly on American exceptionalism. I think Americans are different, and I had written about that in a book, American Journey, which retraced the American travels of Alexis de Tocqueville in the 1830s. Reagan thought Americans were simply better than other people, and that God meant it to be that way. He was a man of ideas, good ones, bad ones, and odd ones. He understood that words are often more important than deeds— One of his forgotten hired hands, James Lake, a campaign press secretary in 1980, said he saw Reagan lose his temper only once. Lake had walked into the candidate's section of a plane to say he needed to talk to him about some issue. Reagan snapped at him. "'No, I'm busy. Can't you see I'm working on my speech? Just go away. We will be there in twenty minutes, and I have to give this speech.' The speech was the real work. No one ever called Reagan an intellectual, but he did see the world in terms of ideas. He was an ideologue with a few ideas that he held with stubborn certainty. His rhetorical gift was to render those ideas into values and emotions. He was capable of simplifying ideas to the point of dumbing down the nation's dialogue by brilliantly confusing fact and fiction. He made politics and governing, too, into a branch of his old business, entertainment. President Reagan is the third of my books about presidents important in my professional lifetime. With each of them, John F. Kennedy, Richard M. Nixon, and Reagan, I have tried to reconstruct a president's world from his own perspective. I am interested in what he knew and when he knew it, what he actually saw and did, sometimes day by day, sometimes hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute. I have tried to show what it was like for each of these men to be president. President Reagan did not do as much as Kennedy and Nixon. They were younger men who wanted to know as much as they could and control as much as possible. Kennedy and Nixon cared greatly about what people were saying about them. Reagan had the virtues and failings of an old man. He already knew what he wanted to know. He was set in his ways, stubborn, and he did not generally care what journalists or the hired help thought of him. He was not obsessed by history, as were Kennedy and Nixon. His wife Nancy would become the shaper and keeper of the legacy." In 1985, he told one of his assistants, political director Ed Rollins, First of all, the history will probably get distorted when it's written, and I won't be around to read it. 
President Reagan did not so much do things as persuade others to do them. His official role model was a president generally judged unimportant, Calvin Coolidge. Young Ronald Reagan, growing up in Illinois river towns, read Coolidge's autobiography, and he read it again in the White House. One Coolidge paragraph struck me. In the discharge of the duties of the office, there is one rule of action more important than all others. It consists in never doing anything that someone else can do for you. In An American Life, the autobiography he wrote in 1990, Reagan compares his boyhood on the river to the adventures of Tom Sawyer. Exactly right. President Reagan could have been a barefoot hustler in overalls, chewing on a stick of hay, sitting on a barrel in the shade, munching on someone else's apple, a shrewd kid watching other kids whitewash his fence because he had convinced them it was fun. This book is a narrative of what President Reagan did at crucial points of his eight years in office. What I searched for was what he knew or heard said and read. In my account, all of what he says and is said to him is taken from recordings, documents, journals, notes, and interviews, including my own reporting over the years. Where someone's thoughts are mentioned, it is because he or she told me those thoughts, or told someone at the time, or recorded their thinking in journals or memoranda. In some cases, usually in tape-recorded and telephone conversations, I have edited out us, repetitions, and confusing errors of grammar. I don't subscribe to the many theories of Reagan's passivity. It's true that much of any presidency is essentially reactive, dealing with crises unpredictable and unanticipated. Strikes, bombings, market crashes, revolutions, plagues— but the President Reagan I found in the course of my research was a gambler, a bold, determined guy. On Halloween night in 1975, he told his wife he was running for president again, no matter what. I'm entering the race, otherwise I'd feel like the guy who always sat on the bench and never goes into the game. Reagan came to the White House more than five years later with an agenda— a few simple ideas about taxes and prosperity, the moral and economic bankruptcy of communism, and a remaking of America back into the remembrances of his own boyhood and a Reader's Digest version of the 1950s. He remembered happy times. Or perhaps it was just what he imagined, a gentle, God-fearing, and whitewashed American past that never was. Happy times, he persuaded himself and many others, were real and wonderful. He also saw or imagined an American future of lower taxes, less government, reduced taxation, military superiority, and a world where Americans would walk proudly and safely on the meanest streets and trails of the world. He believed everyone admired or envied Americans. If they did not, they were evil. He imagined a future, and he made some of it happen. Reagan was dismissed as a lightweight with no strategy, and he resented that. 
Asked before he was president about how he would deal with communism and the Soviet Union, he replied, We win, they lose. And that's what happened, though he didn't reach his imagined end all by himself, as his champions now claim in television commentary and volumes of hero worship. Reagan's admirers should not claim that without him the collapse of communism would never happen, editorialized The Economist in the week of his death in June 2004. It would have collapsed anyway in the end, a system which believes that a small group of self-selected possessors of the truth knows how to run everything, is sooner or later going to run into the wall. But Reagan brought the wall closer. The result? Maybe twenty years less of Marxist-Leninist ideological arrogance and of the Cold War's dangers. Former President Gerald Ford added to that, saying bringing down communism was not a one-man job. I feel very strongly that our country's policies, starting with Harry Truman and those who followed him, Democratic and Republican presidents and Democratic and Republican congresses, brought about the collapse of the Soviet Union. That is true, of course. President Reagan didn't win the Cold War and end communism, but he knew that it was going to happen. No small thing. He had imagined it for a long time, and his vision traveled further than he knew. On the morning of April 1, 1985, James Buckley, a former senator from New York, serving as president of Radio Free Europe, came into the Oval Office. He was holding a couple of tiny pieces of rice paper. This is a message to you from a hundred women who are locked in the pokey, meaning a Soviet prison camp. Buck